You were in a 4G inverted dive with the MiG-28? Yes, ma'am. What were you doing there? Keeping up foreign relations. I was, uh, you know, giving him the bird. You know, the finger. Yes, I know the finger, Goose. I'm, I'm sorry, I hate it when it does that. I'm sorry. All players, low down, active, bullseye, one, three, two, seven. Put tactical. <laughs> We're live. Welcome to the merge where we make sense of defense in a enjoyable way. You heard the Top Gun intro. Today we're going to talk about foreign relations and why it matters for national security. But before we get there, we do have some admin to cover. If you like what you hear, do us a solid. Give us a rating and a review on wherever you're hearing this or watching it. Apple, Spotify, YouTube. Uh, we're also on IMDb, so check that out. Leave us a rating and a review. The algorithms love your feedback, and so do we. And it really helped push our content to other people, so we really appreciate it. Oh, and by the way, if you found this pod somehow magically and are not signed up for our newsletter, you're missing out. It's the first link in the show notes. Uh, that's where all the gold is. It comes out on Sundays and Tuesdays. We pull a lot of that data to pull these together, these podcasts, but that's where the gold is. Okay, motherhood is complete. Speaking of newsletters, <laughs> we're going to use that segue to intro today's guest, John Fowler. He is the co-founder of International Intrigue, which is a newsletter that's focused on geopolitics and international relations. And it's all written by former diplomats. That is the connection of having him on today to talk about foreign relations. So welcome, John. Welcome to the show. Appreciate it, Mike. It's, uh, it's exciting to be here. I'm a, I'm a listener of the podcast, so it's uh, fun to be on. Thanks. Uh, I really appreciate it. And we'll talk a little bit more about the newsletter uh, that you put out uh, Monday through Friday, five days a week. Mm -hmm. It's it's basically if you like the merge, it's like the merge, but it's for all of the foreign policy, international news going on and the way they have it structured. It makes it so easy to, to, to figure out what's going on every day. Uh, I read it every day to kind of keep a pulse on what's going on around the world uh, as I dig through our national security stuff on a daily basis to do my own thing. So uh, thanks for doing what you do. It helps me do what I do. Yeah, my pleasure. It's nice to hear that uh, you use it in the way that we intended it. I, I kind of keeping keeping uh, abreast of what's going on around the world without uh, having to spend, you know, tens of hours kind of combing through all the, the fire hose of news. Oh, and it's a lot. I know. So I definitely appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, John. So so to start with today, you uh, you're a former diplomat. So tell me a little bit about you and then we'll kind of dig into that. As as you might already know, uh, I'm I was an Australian diplomat. You can probably tell by the accent, although I'm I'm told it's fading over time. I haven't been in Australia for almost ten years now. So, well, I actually started my career as an international lawyer, doing a lot of um, kind of South China Sea, FONOPS, territorial integrity kind of work within the Foreign Ministry of Australia. Then I did a posting as a diplomat to China for just about five years um, in Beijing and Shanghai. It was an interesting time to be there. I left towards the end of 2019, just just before COVID hit. So um, I'm not making any conclusions on that. But I, then I went off to London and did an MBA for two years, uh, which kind of was where international intrigue was born. And now I'm based in the US doing this full time, obviously, um, with my team. So FONOPS, uh, for you guys that don't, mm. uh, don't know, FONOPS, it's Freedom of Navigation Operations. That is um, your listeners know that I'm sure <laughs> ma maintaining uh, access to the global commons for international trade and, and preserving those norms. That's a, we can probably do a whole podcast exactly. just on FONOPS. <laughs> 
Yeah, and when I when I was working on that stuff, so in the international law division of the Australian Foreign Ministry, it was around the time that China was starting to come up with these ideas like the nine dash line and starting to just test the limits in the South China Sea. Obviously, this was you know almost a decade ago, and and since then it's kind of escalated to where we are now. But it was an interesting time to work on it for sure. Yeah, they have a lawfare as a kind of subset of yeah. influencing font ops, which is a whole different. Again, we could have a whole episode on that. Uh, we could. We're, we're going out of rabbit hole, but that's, that's okay. That's why we're here. We're trying to talk about whatever. <laughs> okay, so exactly. So, in a nutshell, if you could describe, uh, since you were used to be a diplomat, what is diplomacy mm-hmm. for people who just like that sounds like a five dollar word. I don't know what it means. Right. Uh, you'd think by now we'd have come up with a, a really pithy way to describe it. Um, the best I can do is it is kind of like being uh, an investigative journalist, but your audience is the government. So you're in another country rooting around stories, figuring out what's going on on the ground, and you're writing reports back to your government. So that, that's one element of being a diplomat. And then the element of the other element of being a diplomat that folks probably are more aware of is kind of you're delivering messages on behalf of your government to the government that you're of the country you're in. So it's like a two-way communicator between where you're based and your home country. Part of gathering that kind of information, reporting stuff is attending parties and, and, and events, which sounds a lot better than it actually is in practice when you have to go to stuff five nights a week that you don't want to go to and introduce yourself and hand out your business card a, <laughs> a thousand times a week. But yeah, that's the main goal. So, you know, to put a bit more meat on that bone, when I was in China, in Shanghai, I was kind of responsible for the political and economic reporting in that part of China. So a normal day for me might have meant um, going and taking a meeting with uh, an academic who had some views on the the Chinese economy, then going and visiting a business to kind of not not necessarily sense test what I what I've been hearing, but just to get a different perspective from the business how they're finding things in the Chinese economy. Maybe talking to an Australian business that's doing business in China to kind of see what they're thinking, kind of triangulating all of that and then writing a report back to back to Canberra to sort of say, hey, this is what we're we're seeing on the ground. So you do with that information what you do back in capital. I would say it's a little bit like foreign intelligence collection, but it's not foreign intelligence collection. You're collecting information that's the ground truth as you understand it to bring that back to decision makers to advance interests and objectives for your your country. In this case, you were in Australia. Um, but yeah. the same thing for the United States. The State Department is the people who run foreign diplomacy for, on behalf of the United States. And and that's that's kind of the way I interpret it. They have embassies and consulates and all around the world. Uh, what is the difference between an embassy and a consulate, by the way? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, so an embassy is uh, generally in the capital of the country you're in and the consulates are in other cities. So the embassy is kind of the hub. For example, in the US, Australia's embassy is in Washington, DC, but we have a consulate in New York, in LA, in Chicago. So in big countries, you'll tend to have a couple of consulates that do, they do more things like, you know, consular work. If, if an Australian citizen or an American citizen in, say, India is kind of in trouble somewhere, maybe the consulate will handle that because it's such a big country. Basically, a satellite office is the best way to think of it. Okay. Well, and to add to that, in the Commonwealth, the old Commonwealth countries, so the UK's empire, so that's Australia, Canada, a bunch of Pacific islands, we don't actually call them embassies. They become high commissions. Um, so they're the same thing. But if our, we have an embassy in, say, Fiji, it's actually called a high commission. But 
that's just a bit of trivia. <laughs> Sounds very royal. It's very royal, doesn't of you. it? Yeah, <laughs> very fancy. <laughs> In the in the U.S., they have the Department of State and the Department of Defense, which share a lot of uh, a lot of things back and forth. And we'll talk about that in just a second. One of the things that's interesting in the United States, the way that bureaucrats have drawn lines on a map. Listeners are probably familiar with the Department of Defense has combatant commands, so they have six geographic operating regions: Northcom, Southcom, Centcom, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. The Department of State in the US has the same thing. They have six geographic regions drawn on a map as how they kind of divide up their area of operations. Fun fact, those lines are not the same lines. So you could have a military combatant command, but then have two Department of State. Um, That's interesting. Uh, what is the, what is that called? Uh, regional bureaus, they're called regional bureaus. Right. Yeah, so yeah. You could, we just layer around the bureaucracy, uh, whether it's intended or, or, or not, I don't know, but Fun fact, those are not the same lines on the map, even though they sound alike. It's always good to add complexity, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I'm sure at some point, somewhere back in back when uh, those decisions were made, someone had a very good reason for it, but it's lost, lost to time, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're eventually going to zoom out and get to China. You heard John's intro. It's obviously his area of expertise. Uh, we're going to kind of walk the dog to get there. But don't worry, we'll get there and, uh, and you fast forward <laughs> if you don't want to hear it. But the next thing I want to talk about is how diplomacy and the military are actually tied together. And there is a famous quote from General Mattis, and he used it for about a period of like six or seven years. If you don't fund the State Department fully, then I need to buy more ammunition. There is probably no other quote that I can think of in modern history that that it links those two departments of diplomacy and the military better than that quote. And that ties into a concept which is called dime when you get to uh, instruments Mm -hmm. of national power. So how a nation has power. Uh, Dime is one of the easy frameworks. There's a couple of them out there that have way more (laughs) letters that I can I can think of right now. Uh, But dime D is diplomacy. Uh, The M is military. And then in between that, you have I for information and then E for economics. So the four sources of national power and When you look at diplomacy, that gets into uh, embassies, your ambassadors, you're in your embassies, treaties, policies, international forums, negotiations, those kinds of things that build those partners and allies and those relationships. And the enduring advantage of the United States is its partners and allies. And that is the one thing that sets us apart from all of the other things that we have going on in the world right now, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, is they don't have partners and allies. And so this is where the, the diplomacy comes into play because that's how you build deterrence. A uh, little segue into military stuff for just a second, and then we'll get back to diplomacy. Uh, the national security strategy, it refers to the instruments of national power. And then mm-hmm. more specifically, the, the U.S. national defense strategy now has this thing called integrated deterrence. And if you actually read the definition of it, it says we're going to use all the tools of national power across domains, geography, Spectrum of conflict while working with partners and allies. All tools of national power is the D and dime. And this is the diplomacy we're talking about, the State Department. Okay, so there's your segue from military back to back to diplomacy. John, to get to China, let's start let's start with a weird topic with South America, because I think a lot of listeners are probably not really tracking South America as much as they should be. Uh, I'm not a South American expert. Uh, you're a Chinese expert, but 
the connection between South America and China really comes back to two things, the Monroe Doctrine and the Belt and Road Initiative. Those are the kind of the two things that jump out at me. Uh, I'll hand it over to you if you want to pick one of those and we can just kind of chat through them. Sure. Yeah. Um, let me let me just say on, on what you were saying there about dime, I think it's such an important thing to remember for folks who on either side of the fence of diplomacy or on, on the military to remember that the other side of the fence. I, I know in my time in the foreign ministry, there was kind of not as much engagement with the military side of things as there probably should have been and vice versa. And there's a longstanding thing, I'm sure it's true in America as well, that, you know, the State Department or foreign ministries tend not to get funded anywhere near as much as they should because it's impossible to show success. Like the absence of conflict is success, but, you know, you can't really ever measure that. But it's a super important point that without the kind of international rules that your country, America, has done an incredible job of building up over the last, you know, 80, 90 years, that's all done by diplomacy. You obviously need the enforcement mechanism of a credible threat of a military, but you need the rules in the first place. You need the relationships in the first place. And I think it's super insightful that you kind of say that America's great strength is its networks, its friends, its allies, its relationships, something that I think is kind of getting perhaps missed in the political conversation a little bit in the US lately is the idea that America alone is probably not as strong as America, you know, with its allies and, and its partners. But to get to your question, why don't we pick the Monroe Doctrine? I, I you know, I, I didn't actually study international relations at university. I was a, an economist and a lawyer. Um, so I kind of came to all of that stuff later in life through my interest in history. I, I hate to always reference back to China, but the Monroe Doctrine, as far as I understand it, maybe you can set me straight, is essentially America declaring in the 1800s that anything that happened in this part of the world, you know, in the US, South America, Central America, was essentially a matter for America, or at least not a matter for the Europeans and other outsiders, and that anybody kind of meddling in, say, Mexico or, or, or Venezuela or Brazil would be seen as kind of maybe meddling in the U.S. Is that is that kind of a fair sum up of the of the Monroe Doctrine? That's exactly right. So it goes back to the 1820s. It was uh, President James Monroe uh, in a message to Congress, and he basically said, "Europe, stay out of my neighborhood." And there's a whole bunch of things that happened leading up to that. And that it's evolved over time since that. But at first it was mm -hmm. stay out. And then Theodore Roosevelt, actually in the 1920s, 19, the teens, so about 80 years later or so, extended that to intervention. And so the, what we call in the United States the Banana Wars, there was a lot of intervention operations in the, in yeah. the teens. Uh, so about 110 years ago. Uh, so I think Cuba, Panama, Honduras, Mexico, Haiti, Dominican Republic. And then you have the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is another extension of a little bit of the Monroe Doctrine. Um, the interesting thing, and, and John, I don't know if you, how closely you're tracking it in the, the U.S., and I don't think actually most of our listeners are tracking it either. This is your, your connection to, to China. In 2013, the United States sent a message out. The Secretary of State, John Kerry, basically ended the Monroe Doctrine as a formal U.S. policy. So and he openly invited... European and Asian powers to come into the Western hemisphere and to rise basically people back into prosperity. So mm. that was, uh, that set the conditions for a whole bunch of things that happened that China started doing. Um, but it really started with us going like, you know what, come on over. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's so much there to unpack. I mean, that was an era in which the world viewed and the U S viewed China in a completely different 
light, much more benevolently. But I, but I also think it's interesting that I, it's, to some extent, again, you might know more about this than me, that, that the US is kind of starting that Monroe Doctrine up or at least talking about starting it up. I, I, if I'm not massively mistaken, I think Rex Tillerson, when he was Secretary of State, kind of said that, you know, we will use the Monroe Doctrine in the in South America. It's been a success. We'll use it again to kind of pick and choose the partners that we have. I, I, again, I think this is around the, the Belt and Road Initiative. And, You're and exactly all, and all right. Kind of You're, yes. As far as I can tell in my research. Yeah. So 2013, uh, the U.S. goes, we are ending the Monroe Doctrine. Come on over. And so China, the same year, launched the Belt and Road Initiative and a few other things. Russia started getting right. more active in South America. Yada, yada, yada. About five years later, everyone goes, oh, China is not not the nice person we thought maybe they were. They're probably a way bigger threat than we had anticipated. Uh, in 2019, they said, the Monroe Doctrine is back, baby. And like, well, mm -hmm. you know, you, you kind of let the cat out of the bag already. <laughs> if we zoom out, though, like the Monroe Doctrine is really just a fancy way of describing what all big, powerful countries try to do, right, which is exert regional influence over their backyard and, and as far as they possibly can to kind of say what goes on near us and where we can influence it, that has to be influenced by us. So I think in one way, it's kind of, it's kind of an interesting way to look at it and say, oh, it's been, you know, it's, we've stopped the Monroe Doctrine. Now we're starting it again, but not, not really. Right. I think yeah. the, the idea in 2013, as misguided as it's turned out to be, was much more like, oh, China can come in and help us capacity build in areas that will reinforce our influence in this part of the world. It might democratize Venezuela and, and, and you know, some Central American countries. Maybe they'll have a positive influence on Cuba, these kinds of places, fix Argentina's economy if like that was possible. <laughs> but, you know, so there was kind of, I think, I, I imagine a calculus that, China would come in and play by America's rules in that part of the world. And then, as you say, we were a bit naive and, and BRI is, you know, not necessarily dangerous, but it's certainly not working towards what I would imagine U.S. goals in the region are. Yeah, I mean, you could argue, <laughs> you could argue that, you know, China's version of the Monroe Doctrine, they're trying to do that right now, just get out of totally. my neighborhood. And we're moving into their neighborhood more and more to try to encircle yeah. them with, you know, bilateral treaties and partnerships and basing and so anyways, I see their point for, you know, to an extent. Well, I, I'm glad you mentioned that though, because I, I, I sort of didn't want to jump onto it too quickly, but it's, <laughs> it, it, it is, it is kind of one thing for the U S to say, you know, we have a Monroe doctrine in, in, in this part of the world, but then to say China, you absolutely cannot do anything outside your borders without talking to us or at least letting us kind of be a partner in it. Japan, we're going to fund Japan, we're going to fund Taiwan, all these kinds of things. Now, I'm not saying I disagree with the policies that the West has taken in that front. I'm a bit of a bit of a China hawk these days. But um, it's easy to see how they can whip themselves up internally into arguments of hypocritical the US, you know, they do it, why can't we, this kind of stuff, I think. Has your position or your view of China changed over time as you've as you've seen you know China evolve and you you know obviously evolve and you know, your body mm -hmm. of knowledge you know the world changes you know have do you carry a different view of China now than you used to hugely um hugely i I think the most influential sort of factor in that change is having spent four and a half years dealing with the Chinese government and and with Chinese kind of not not people because that that kind of you know they're like the Chinese people are like any other people they 
just want their own stuff, but the Chinese Communist Party in particular. So I went to China in 2000, at the very start of 2015, which I would argue is probably right about the start of when Xi Jinping started to kind of exert his power externally. He was kind of solidifying his power internally before that. And 2015, 16, 17, he started to treat Australia pretty pretty tough. There was reports coming out that a lot of the early BRI partners in Central Asia were not thrilled with Chinese interaction. So there was this idea that China was becoming a little bit thornier, pricklier, more assertive. And over the time that I spent there, I just became very, very, um, I don't convinced isn't the right word, but I became of the view that the Communist Party is, I mean, if we're both fans of history here. You go back to the existence of the Communist Party as a revolutionary party in, in, you know, in 49, winning the Civil War, chasing the nationalists to Taiwan, but not quite finishing them off. Um, and then since then, justifying why they are in power as a authoritarian one-party state by, you know, rallying the Chinese people against a series of challenges. You know, throughout Mao's time, you had the Cultural Revolution, which his idea was to like advance Chinese culture. Then you had the Soviet split, obviously economic prosperity in the in the last sort of 20 years of the 20th century. And as you move forward to China becoming a, you know, not rich country, but a, getting closer to a kind of a middle income country, it starts to rise in its geopolitical power. It, it just became clear to me that the Communist Party needed to sort of figure out the next struggle in order to kind of maintain its legitimacy with the Chinese people. And I think Xi Jinping understood that. And so Taiwan is one of those things, you know, the reunification of the motherland, but also this idea that China is now struggling against the rest of the world for legitimacy, for respect, for acceptance onto the world stage. And that message as I, over the five years I spent there was just kind of repeated to me ad nauseum by communist party officials like you know we are rising you can't stop us it's inevitable um you've got to pay tribute to us or or not literally but you know you've got to bend the knee otherwise you know we're going to smash you and i think that was a real eye-opener to me because up until then studying it reading about it you kind of had this view that china in the world was a slowly, gradually liberalizing country that would get there in its own time and become an integrated member of the sort of American-ish led economic global order. But I think certainly since Xi Jinping came to power, they have changed that view and become much more hawkish themselves. So yeah, I mean, long answer to your question, but I think, yes, I have evolved my views based on changing circumstances and spending time dealing with the Communist Party. Man, fascinating insight. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I, no, I this, the, yeah. no, this is great. Uh, yeah. I, I, I'm, a lot of things are coming to mind as you're talking. I'm just like, oh, interesting. Yeah. So when you look at China, kind of the rise of China and being more assertive globally, the BRI was obviously one of the, one of the big strategies they had. So for listeners, uh, if you're watching, we'll put, we'll put uh, some graphics here in, in the, on YouTube. Uh, but bottom line is the Belt and Road Initiative is basically a global Chinese development strategy. So they're going to go out to all of these nations around the world and they're going to give them uh, resources, low cost loans, cheap labor, and help them build infrastructures to connect them to the world and raise them economically. So you go into these nations that, that are maybe heavily leveraged or they're just you know, economically poor and they're trying to build out an economy for them, whether it's through uh, ports or uh, internet, uh, just infrastructure, roads, airports, 
And and the idea is to, uh, again, you're, you're shaping your own narrative. Like, oh, the benevolent Chinese, they're going around the world with all their money and helping everyone. Like, oh, that's such a great message. And and today, I don't know, I have the number off the top of my head, but I think there's like 145 nations or so that are involved mm, in the BRI. Something like that. Yeah, it's 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 almost everyone. Um, but when you look at South America, the BRI originally was not supposed to go to South America. It was to bridge Asia and Europe through Africa, the Middle East. So tons and right. tons of stuff going on in Africa, the Middle East to connect that. And there's, there's a graph that kind of shows how they wanted to connect everyone for trade. Uh, but they go, you know what? In 2018, they go, you know what? We're going to go to Latin America. So they started, they evolved their policy of BRI and started going into Latin America. This is right as the United States is like, actually this Monroe doctrine thing, we're going to bring it back. Please don't do that. <laughs> and they said, yeah, 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 sure. We're gonna do it anyways. So today there's about uh, almost all of the countries in Latin America and the Caribbean uh, participate in BRI. With the exception of, I think, of Brazil, right? Uh, I don't actually know which ones aren't, which would be probably the easier ones and which ones aren't. There's a couple of like Belize is a is a, is a pretty big holdout because they actually recognize yeah. Taiwan. And so the thing that right. uh, when you talk about hearts and minds, oh, we're going to help you. Wouldn't it be nice if you helped us and don't recognize this island that's kind of painting our ass off the, the mm-hmm. coast here? And so what you've seen as a result of the BRI is one by one, nations in Latin America are renouncing the recognition of Taiwan uh, because they're getting money from China. So the Dominican Republic and El Salvador did it in 2018. Um, and then most recently, the one that made the news this year, if people were distracted from the war in Russia, uh, Honduras renounced um, their recognition of Taiwan. Again, they're, they're heavily leveraged and Taiwan wouldn't give them any more loans. So China basically came in and said, hey, we'll forgive your loans, give you a whole bunch of money if you just, you know, make this one statement and renounce your recognition. So uh, China is, is is using their, again, back to dime, they're using the economic power of BRI to shape diplomacy. Mm-hmm. I, it's, I mean, there's so much there, right? Um, yeah. I think at this, I think, I think it's interesting to look at how it, how the BRI has been portrayed in Western media and by Western governments too, because, you know, it's, there's one element of this in, that they China is very good at building infrastructure. Doesn't have these pesky things like Senate approval and you know <laughs> elections every four years or two years and yeah. six years and all these kinds of things. EPA. So they <laughs> right yeah. exactly. So it's like they can go and build infrastructure in countries that probably wouldn't get it in other places uh, from other countries from other organizations. I'm thinking particularly the central um, Central Asian corridor between you know Western China and Pakistan, Afghanistan, through the other stands to, to as you said to sort of Eastern Europe and some of sub-saharan Africa and and those places. So in one sense, as a general structure, general idea, it, it had a lot of positives. but very quickly it turned on, to my to my mind, and I'm sure experts would be able to say precisely when this narrative started to turn, but it was around things like debt trap diplomacy. I don't know if you if you or your, your listeners remember that, but it was the the big example. I think was the Sri Lankan port, which was built with Chinese money, was a bit of a white whale of a infrastructure project. But the story was that they leveraged the Sri Lankan government up to the hilt, and then when they couldn't repay it, they say, "Okay, that's fine. We'll just take over the port." I don't think there's any evidence that that's actually happened, but the threat was that if China went around the world doing this debt diplomacy kind of idea, you know, 
not making investments based on sound financial judgments, but rather where they wanted leverage, buying up ports essentially, and then having PLA Navy vessels docking at these ports around the world. They could almost recreate the American kind of foreign military base model by economic means. It's kind of, it's a lot to unpack, but it kind of, it morphed from this idea of almost like foreign aid in a way, um, you know, like USAID or Australia has AusAid where we go and capacity build in the Pacific Islands. We say mm-hmm. we'll build you a bunch of schools and whatnot. And it kind of morphed into this idea that, uh-oh, maybe China's using this influence to, I mean, you, you said the E in dime, but that would be more the M in dime, right? Like the the military side. I, I don't know how true any of that is. I think it's been overblown, but um, the world, I think, woke up pretty quickly to that idea and then became very, um, I wouldn't say resistant, but much more careful about it. Yeah, it's actually interesting you mentioned that. The M, you know, how the E goes into the M, it's all connected. Mm-hmm. I don't have it in front of me, but I do know that China is the world's third largest exporter of uh, military equipment, so foreign military sales. And interestingly enough, there's five nations now that are basically building their militaries around Chinese equipment in South America, and they're all part of the BRI. So coincidence? Maybe, maybe not. Venezuela, uh, Argentina, Bolivia, uh, Ecuador, and Peru, uh, they're all buying Chinese aircraft, uh, tanks, ground equipment, things like that. They're, they're building their, you know, just like what we do with, with our partners and allies who want interoperability, we can increase our, um, obviously it's capitalism for us. So our, our companies get to make money by selling their stuff overseas to people that we approve. Uh, and it seems like this is one of those ways that they can kind of do that same thing as we're like, you're going to be our partner or ally, whether you want it or not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's in, to take it back to the Monroe Doctrine, that's in much more in America's backyard, right? So that I guess that's the concern there too. I just looked it up as you were talking. Brazil isn't a part of the BRI, but they are still a huge, I think it's like China is Brazil's biggest trading partner. And um, so there's still massive amounts of economic links. In, in a way, BRI is kind of just, again, a nice little name for something. You know, I, I don't know that it matters that much whether Brazil is part of the BRI officially or not, if they're massively dependent on China for trade anyway, right? Yeah. I want to say that Brazil helps China with their food supply. I want to say that oh, big time, yeah. I think it's soybeans is their, their big export for China. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think something like 30% of Brazil's GDP is agriculture. So yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, okay. Let's keep going with China. We'll end South America. I think we're, we're tapped that topic out. Um, so I know you're Australian, but have you heard this thing called the Davidson window? I haven't, no. Ah, this was a few years ago, a man named Admiral Davidson, he, he kind of made this proclamation that we're in this threat window that the CCP will attack Taiwan by 2027. And oh, made, I've heard that. Yeah, yeah so it made a whole bunch of headlines. Window. The CIA actually goes, confirmed it with there. They go, yep, that's actually like pretty accurate. All that's been hmm. you know, put out in the media since. So here's why I guess maybe you can help guide this conversation. What's so important about a window? Like, what's the rush? What do you What do you think is this massive rush? A lot of this, a lot of this is like two different answers: pre-Ukraine, post-Ukraine invasion, right? So, pre-Ukraine, I think um, China saw this idea that the world was kind of slowly waking up to its more assertive 
posture around the world, the idea that the US had been pretty successful in lobbying, particularly Western European governments, but Australia as well, and some Asian countries, some Southeast Asian countries that, hey, China isn't the benevolent force we thought it was. And I think what China would say, the 2027 window is that basically the whole point is you want to make sure that you can take Taiwan without America staking its, you know, blood and treasure on defending it. And I think the way they they would have seen the geopolitical environment before Ukraine going was the longer we wait, the more things are solidifying into two camps, into kind of, you know, it was, this was the Trump era where, you know, Trump was, he had really taken the gloves off, at least rhetorically with China. And I think they, they realized they were losing the Western world's hearts and minds. And I think they thought the longer that goes, it's just going one direction. It's just going to solidify into two camps. And the more you go down that path, the more likely the West is to mount a defense of Taiwan. And also if they start building, you know, maybe I think there's an argument that you could probably expand on that Taiwan has been pretty badly supported by the West in terms of the porcupine strategy. You know, we sell arms to them, but I don't, I think there's tons and tons of reports saying that Taiwan would be swallowed up overnight right now if, um, if there was a war because their military capabilities are just really not where they need to be to defend a full-on invasion. That kind of brings in this idea of like the longer you have to prepare for something that and, and to be very clear, it's inevitable that China will try and take back Taiwan as part of mainland China. The timeline is uncertain and the method is uncertain, but that is founding law of the Communist Party and they will never give up that goal. So it becomes a question of like, oh, if we wait, 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 it becomes harder and harder and harder. Now, post-Ukraine, I think a lot of those assumptions that China would have made, which are we can probably raise the costs on the West of defending Taiwan explicitly such that America will probably just supply arms, but they won't actually get involved. And even if they did, it wouldn't last because the West is fractured and we could probably expect some European resistance, all this kind of stuff. I think the Ukraine invasion has done, well, three things to China. One, it has shown that the West is much more solidly anti kind of anti-invasion than they might have suspected. I think they've seen fewer cracks between the allies than they might have expected. Secondly, I think it's given them a real wake-up call on military capabilities. I don't think that, you know, China hasn't fought a proper war. Let's think, I mean, you can correct me again here, but probably since they invaded Vietnam in the, in the whenever that was, the late 70s, early 80s, something like that. So they haven't actually battle-tested their military, which has just undergone a huge modernization, all this kind of stuff. So they may be thinking, uh-oh, Russia, we thought Russia was pretty good and they were horrible. We've got to make sure that we're not going to fall the same way. And then third, I think they are less convinced that they would win that war quickly and decisively because of the Russian example. They're much more isolated than they were. They have been um, cut off from technology now because as I think largely because of the West waking up to this idea that, oh, Russia does want to take back its sphere of influence, so China does as well, so we've got to kind of act now. And I think they all of these things have kind of solidified in their mind, I think, to be a little bit less gung-ho about that 2027 window, and I think they're probably much more willing to wait now. I, so certainly my prediction is that they'll wait for longer than that. Yeah, well, let's hope so. So, but you think... Uh, well based on the CCP position, it is inevitable that the CCP tries to take Taiwan back with force. Not, not with force. I think their absolute dream scenario would be just to do what they did to Hong Kong, yeah. to slowly 
undermine civil society, to kind of install political leaders sympathetic to Beijing and over 10, 20, 30 years, probably, if I'm honest, I would guess by the 100th anniversary of the Civil War victory, so 1949, 2049, by that time would be the kind of end of a window, I imagine. By that time to have basically done to, to Taiwan what they did to Hong Kong. Now, Taiwanese politics over the last kind of decade has kind of lurched away from pro-Beijing positions, but with Tsai Ing-wen being very, very, you know, pro-Western, I think there is a sense that, elect, I think this election's in Taiwan next year, if I'm not wrong, early next year. That sounds right. There's a sense that a I think the I think the KMT is looks like they're going to win that, and they're a little bit more pro Beijing. But I think ultimately Taiwan doesn't want to become Western or Chinese. They would just like this status quo to continue. But China won't let that happen. Like it, it, it is it is inevitable that they would like that they'll take it back. They don't want to take it back by force, but a lot of that depends on all the other stuff. Yeah. The so the the twenty forty nine is a. Is a very important date, and I want to say back in ooh, 2012, 2010 timeframe, the CCP kind of threw out this uh, proclamation with a couple of interesting dates. Uh, the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party, which would be 2049, they want mm-hmm. to be perceived as a uh, as a global power, also not just a regional power, so a power with global influence, and then. The other assertion they've made, I want to say it's 2035 to have a world-class military, which they mm-hmm. have started building 20 years ago. And they are rapidly building a, uh, a pretty new, we'll see how capable it is maybe, or maybe not, uh, military. Again, it hasn't been tested. And uh, if we've learned anything from watching what happened in Ukraine, the advertised capability of you know, the glossy sales brochure and what something can actually do the industrial base and the just the technical know-how of how to do something is a lot harder than it sounds. Yeah. Uh, so we'll see what and, happens. And they with, haven't been tested, right? And, yeah. And they're building just, this stuff from right. basically scratch or from stolen stuff. But you know, that's yeah. right. It's all it's all reverse engineers. Still, go steal our yeah. steal our bad designs and make them even worse. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> On the other side, I think you know when Pelosi went to Taiwan last year. You know, they they were able to exercise fairly effectively, which I know that doesn't mean that they can fight a war effectively, but I think that they uh, some of the military stuff I was reading then, which you would know better than me, but was basically saying that, oh, they did that better than we thought. Their, their capabilities were at or better than we thought they would looked like for military exercises. Yeah, one of the things that you see, it's like peacocking between the, the nations. They do these forced generations. We call them elephant walks. We, we try a bunch of aircraft, put them on the runway, take some pictures. And go look at how many aircraft are ready to fly. Well, China's right. like, well, that's nice. We just flew them. <laughs> oh, yeah. So the amount, the the size of the force packages you see of ships and airplanes they can generate, put out at sea, put in the air, at a at a pretty rapid aggregation of of that kind of size. It's like, well, we are learning a lot about what they can do, but just how they're doing it. And you go, okay, well, they are definitely more capable than we thought. Or, hey, look, this this little area right here, they haven't figured this out yet. But you can see them learning because they're doing it. So, so right. they are sending a signal. I think that message is being received, and we're trying to send you know, our message back. And that's kind of how deterrence works, right? If, if, you, yeah, if there's exactly. a, credible, a credible threat of your ability to accomplish you know, your goal, then if, and you don't do it, then you are effectively deterred. Right, except for the problem that 
ultimately deterrence comes down to the ability to be deterred. And I, and yeah. I, 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 you know, the, the, the longer the deterrence with Taiwan goes on, doesn't mean that they go, oh, okay, well actually we'll just abandon that goal. That, that goal, if I know anything about China, that goal will not be abandoned. So really I think America hasn't done enough. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. I have no idea what they've done behind the scenes, but publicly at least there hasn't been a real grappling to my mind with the question of the value, and this sounds—I know it sounds a little bit um, cold-hearted to say—but the value of Taiwan to to the U.S. Like, is it worth defending? Now, you don't—you've got strategic ambiguity, which means you, by definition, you don't want to say yes or no. But I don't think there's a real great sense of why would we defend Taiwan militarily? You know, what is the purpose of that? Maybe you come out on the on the side of saying yes, we should because it upholds the global, you know, all that kind of stuff, but. It strikes me that against an, an adversary that will not give up its goal, the U.S. kind of can back itself, or the West, I should say, not just the U.S., because Australia is going to be involved in this one way or another, I'm sure, too. But if you've got a, an adversary that says, we're not giving up on this goal, you kind of have to be very clear-eyed about to what lengths you'll go to stop that goal. And I don't know. I, I, haven't, I don't think we've grappled with that particularly well yet. That's a great point. The two the two things that come to mind is that China has a timeline and we have a timeline. Those are not the same scales. <laughs> so, right. You know, in China, back to what you were talking about earlier, they view the 20th century as a blip on their radar. It's just a blip. Like, oh, we, we, were, we, we were not strong just for that little blip. You know, but over the course of thousands of years, very, very strong. And so we're just going back to where we were before. Where the United States... That is our right. That's the only thing we know. Pretty young, obviously, compared to China. And so we have just different scales. And you look at even politics and policy and strategy. We make decisions based on two-year election cycles, you know, two, four, and six. The House is two, the President's four, and the Senate's six. China is making like 20-year, 30-year strategies and, and, and laying the foundations to do that. When you have domestic politics starts to undermine our own strategy as a nation, I think that's that's been top of mind that I've noticed the past uh, several years in the United States. But yeah, your, your point about strategic ambiguity, yeah, because if you ask uh, you know, the most people in the United States, what is the, the formal U.S. position on Taiwan? They probably couldn't tell you. No, right. And I guess that is also by design. But I think, I think more what I would like to see is... You know, Ryan Haas from, I don't know if he's at Brookings or somewhere, but he's a think tanker in DC who, who's very good on China. He basically said that every single person or every single side on the Taiwan issue should be looking for the status quo to continue down as far as we possibly can. China should want that because they don't fight a potentially cat catastrophic war, but inevitably they're going to influence Taiwan much more and much more and much more. The US should not be fighting a war over Taiwan, which if they lose would really mark the end of the American kind of dominance, really, that would be a very nice, you know, when historians look back in a couple of hundred years, that would be the point that they say that was Trafalgar. That was, uh, that was, you know, Waterloo for the US. And the Taiwanese people obviously shouldn't want a war because they're the ones who'd suffer. And then you don't even get into chips and, you know, semiconductors and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, the, in a the way, chips thing. Oh yeah. It was about a month or so ago. I was uh, listening to something or reading something. I can't remember what it was. And it was a fascinating discussion about, like, you know, the, the $52 billion CHIPS Act and all of this and, and onshoring CHIPS production. That sounds great. However, it's 
decoupling our U.S. interests in Taiwan, which makes it even less of a deterrence of China seizing Taiwan because we have even less skin in the game. So you yep. look at like the 20, about 2027 to 2030 timeline, you know, we won't be dependent on Taiwan for chips at all necessarily, right? I've been saying that for about six months or yeah, since, since the U.S. released the chip ban on China, that it goes both ways too, because the more that the U.S. prevents China from being reliant on TSMC in Taiwan to get its advanced chips, the less it has restraining it from invading Taiwan as well. So like all of these decouplings, de-riskings, whatever you want to call them, they sound good in theory and they probably de-risk the individual industry or the individual kind of um, investments. But broadly as a system, I think you can make an argument that it increases the risk of conflict because there are fewer things binding all sides together that no one wants to risk destroying because the minute there's a shot fired in Taiwan, the semiconductor industry is gone. I read somewhere where they were like, oh, well, China will just capture TSMC. It's like TSMC's ultra lithography machines or whatever you call them. They're so sensitive that if there's a train miles away, they register those vibrations and need to be recalibrated. That's how finely tuned these machines are. The minute a Taiwanese tank lands on Taiwan or a missile gets fired, everything's gone and you've got this huge loss of semiconductor supply in the market, which China previously would have been really reliant on. And now as time goes on and they start to develop domestic capabilities, they're going to be like, oh, well, it doesn't matter because we don't need it. Yeah, the things that they will need though is TSMC. So T is Taiwan. It's a Taiwanese company. It's the uh, number one chip foundry in the world. So companies well a lot of it's changing but five years ago you could say companies like app like intel they don't actually make chips they design chips and then mm -hmm. they they ship their design specs over to tsmc they make the chips for other companies intel is now creating their own foundries uh apple's starting to get in the game a little bit but yeah it, it goes back to the onboarding uh, of the chips but to your point about the tsmc like they're they're so far ahead with uh when you look at nanometer scale chips oh yeah you know, versus China, just seizing that equipment and that, you know, that gives them a 10 year leap ahead and just capabilities just from, even though the equipment may not work, but they have the, they can seize the people and obviously documentation, the equipment. There's a lot there with, uh, we could probably talk a whole episode of just about computer chips <laughs> in, about anything, in China. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot to unpack here, obviously. Oh, yeah. So the last thing I want to talk about, um, I know that you're you're Australian, so I kind of alluded to earlier, just so it's clear for our listeners, um, when I said, hey, the average person probably couldn't tell you what the official U.S. policy is regarding Taiwan. Are you smart on the uh, the TRA or the, Ta the Taiwan Policy Act from, from the United States from last year? Yeah, yeah, like across it broadly, yeah, not, not in any detail. The TRA, which, uh, which is the Taiwan Recognition Act, and it has what's called a Six Assurances. Uh, that yes. was from the 80s, right? Right. And that had, and I can't remember what the six assurances are. Neither can I, to be honest. That's why I'm, I'm like broadly across it, but I don't remember the details. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it basically says that we will sell stuff. We will sell military arms to Taiwan. We yeah. will not ask China before we sell military arms to Taiwan. We don't recognize Taiwan. That's like three of them. And I so can't it's, remember the it's, rest of we, them. We recognize the one China policy or the idea that we, we don't, we don't recognize Taiwan as part of China, but we don't recognize it as not part of China, if you know what I mean? Like that we don't recognize independence. We remain ambiguous on that stuff. What was the other ones? Like we haven't, we're not going to end. I think it's like we're not going to end 
our support for Taiwan or we don't have a date for that. Um, yeah, it says we're not going to like we're not going to walk away from the TRA like this is like, one, of, one of the assurances is trust us, basically. <laughs> right. So the whole idea here is just essentially that what we were just talking about before with that credible strategic ambiguity is that we're, we're going to help Taiwan defend itself. We're not going to stop doing that. We're not going to tell China we're doing it, but we're also not going to like stoke the fire by saying this is in aim of Taiwan independence or this is to be used against China. That's broadly the idea, right? That's exactly right. So the Taiwan Policy Act of 2022 came out last year. That's why it's 2022. Mm -hmm. it, it basically reaffirmed the, the TRA, that original uh, six assurances, but mm -hmm. it had some specific language in there. And we'll put the link in the show notes for, uh, for listeners. But it basically says the U.S. does not support Taiwanese independence. Right. But it does promote its safety and security and its ability to deter aggression from China. So this is how you get, we're not going to support your independence, but we're also going to like not make sure China invades you, which is against the status quo. It's the ambiguity. It is one of the strategies a nation can pursue. As long as you don't tell people what you will and won't do, then you have to inject that calculus into your decisions for deterrence. And so that's one of the reasons why uh, that exists. But most people yeah. would think that it's an automatic U.S. involvement. Um, whether or not we get involved, like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who knows? I mean, that is kind of entirely dependent on circumstances and, and context. But I remember that, that act passing, and I think a lot of it was motivated by the idea that I think Nancy Pelosi went in the start of the year to Taiwan and Beijing got very upset. And, and that's that's an important thing to note that when you are familiar with democracies and you work in them and you understand them, you know that President Biden couldn't have stopped Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan or it would have been so difficult for him to do it that he would have burned his political capital, you know, all over the place. China doesn't understand that, right? Because their, their system yeah. is that like, if the boss says you don't do it, you don't do it. So they interpret Americans saying, oh, Nancy Pelosi, we couldn't stop her. She's a free citizen or whatever, whatever the excuses were. They think that's a lie. So I yeah. think back channeling from a bunch of my um, friends in the area, they were they sort of saw that restatement of the strategic ambiguity idea. What you were just talking about the was it called the Taiwan Policy Act? Yeah, the restatement of that was kind of a reassurance to China that despite various members of Congress doing these kinds of things, the official policy hasn't changed, and you just and again you just have to trust us on that. Yeah, and the and the, the higher ranking person, whether it's uh, a civilian appointee, uh, so in the Pentagon, a military general, or an elected official, those all have different ramifications and responses that it kind of invokes from China when, when they go to, go to Taiwan. So it's very, very sensitive of what seniority of people typically are permitted to travel onto the island because of that. And this yeah, is where exactly. the Pelosi thing kind of like, like just threw a huge curveball in the kind of the, the norms that had been established for a long time. And that's, yeah, go back to your point. It's like, whoop, sorry. You know, maybe we we're actually can't sorry. do much about it. <laughs> we can't and, do much but, about it. So sorry, not sorry. <laughs> right, exactly. But you know, Beijing, Beijing loves to drum up all the, the fury in response to that. But I think it, that in one sense, they use this to adv their advantage with like a frog in the boiling pot kind of strategy where they overreact. I think I can say that pretty objectively. They overreact rhetorically, but then they launch these military exercises and they normalize the idea that 
China can practice blockading Taiwan and firing missiles over Taiwan and, you know, incursions into the into into Taiwanese airspace. Each time they have an excuse to normalize this stuff that the next time, let's say McCarthy went or someone else went, they can do even more and more and more. And before you know it, they've really practiced a lot of the stuff um, that, you know, if they had just done it from zero to 100, would have drawn a much different response from the US as a massive escalation, but they just kind of slowly ratcheted up over time. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. We're about out of time here, but here, here's what I would like to do. There is so much more to talk about for foreign relations, international relations, and we'd like to have John back on in the future, but why don't you tell us what you guys want to, yeah. for us to talk about? So if you go click the link for our YouTube channel and Put the comments in there of the feedback and then we can actually see your comments of what you would like to hear about next time. And then we'll, we'll get all those comments. We'll debrief it. And then we'll, we'll set up another topic for another day. Uh, then we'll have John back on. Cause there's, there's so many fascinating things to talk about. We can talk about for hours. Yeah. That's going to, we're going to put a pin in it for another day. <laughs> yeah. Any, anytime you want me back to, to, to shoot the shit about the, the world and what's going on. I'm, I'm here. I love it. Awesome. And in the meantime, uh, where can people find you? Yeah. So um, I would love folks to subscribe to our newsletter. So it's at internationalintrigue.io. Um, if you just Google international intrigue, you'll you'll find it. Um, we're on Twitter at intintrigue um, and you can Google that as well. But yeah, sign up to the newsletter. It's completely free, four to five minutes reading a day and you'll get across most of the stuff that you need to know. With We, we, we do the same thing that you do too at the Merge. We kind of try to make it a little bit interesting, a little, our, our tone isn't kind of the, the foreign policy establishment tone. It's much more, we try to inject a bit of humor, a bit of, a bit of levity to the situation because, you know, it can be pretty tedious reading all the kind of stuff that gets put out about geopolitics and international relations. So hopefully we manage to cut through that with something that, that folks will enjoy reading. So yeah, I would encourage everyone to sign up. Also just get in contact with me as well. You can find my details on, on the website as well. And I'm always up for a chat or, or anything like that. Awesome. So the newsletter is my go-to source for figuring out what's going on in the world every day and digesting that in a pretty good way. So I really, really enjoy it. I'll have a link for the landing page for the newsletter in the show notes, the Twitter, and I'll have John's email uh, linked in the show notes. All right. Well, that was awesome. And until next time, you guys stay safe. We'll see you.